Well, before I start, can I just echo Martin's words from the beginning of the service? Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Year. And while I'm at it, I'm just going to add in, in case I haven't seen you since then, Merry Christmas. I hope you all had a wonderful and holy Christmas day, and I hope you had a happy and fun New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. Well, I don't know about you, but my family has some traditions when it comes to the holidays. Perhaps you do as well. Perhaps, um, perhaps you always open your stockings before Christmas Day, like Christmas Eve, in which case, as a child, I would have been very jealous of you. Or perhaps you always have a certain group of friends over for lunch on Christmas Day or for dinner on New Year's Eve. Whatever it is, I bet you have some traditions around these holidays. Well, growing up, my family had a few very specific, well, I shouldn't say a few, they're actually quite a lot, but a few very special traditions around Christmas Day. And this year, uh, I actually had all of my folks up for Christmas, which was an adventure. It was a little hectic, a little crazy, and a lot of fun. And my daughter, who's now all of one year old, had a blast, but had no idea what was going on whatsoever, no idea. But it made me realize Thinking back on all those traditions from my childhood, Verity may not know what was happening with this Christmas, but next Christmas she'll start to have an idea. And the Christmas after that, she'll know even more. So my husband and I need to buckle down and start coming up with the traditions we want. We need to have a plan here. Well, the traditions, one of my favorite traditions, I should say, uh, as I look back on my childhood, one that I'd love to find a way to introduce for Verity as she grows up, is that we always used to read the Christmas story from the Bible and pray together as a family before we did anything else Christmas morning. I say it's one of my favorite traditions. That's looking back. At the time, I really wanted to open my presents first, but I love that we did that. We weren't allowed to even look at presents. We weren't allowed to even have breakfast. We read the Bible and we prayed together on a fam as a family Christmas morning before we did all those Christmassy things that we think about. And I love that. And I love that my parents did that because it was a way of trying to keep us in the midst of all the candy from the stockings and the new toys and the excitement. It was a way that they tried to keep us focused on why we were really celebrating Christmas. That this wasn't just about wrapping paper and twinkly lights and all of that, but it was about Jesus. I love that they did that. Even so, even though I think it was, you know, a really good job, I do think that there was something important I missed from Christmas growing up. You see, if you had asked me back in the day why we celebrated Christmas, I would have said that it was because we were celebrating Jesus' birth the incarnation, as we like to call it theologically, when God became human to save us. And before you misunderstand me, that's not a wrong answer. That is absolutely why we celebrate Christmas. But here's what I missed. I kind of understood Christmas as a necessary prequel, a step on the way to God saving us on Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Jesus was born, God became human, in order that he could die and then, in that way, save us. And while that's true, that's 
incomplete. That's not a full understanding of the incarnation. You see, the incarnation was not just a step on the road to Calvary. The incarnation was an incredible, reality-altering event in its own right. It has profound and intimate effects on me and on you and on everyone else we encounter, even today. Our collect for today, the prayer that Martin read earlier, it hints at this. It says, O God, who wonderfully created and yet more wonderfully restored the dignity of human nature. Jesus' incarnation, the moment when God became human while still remaining divine, the incarnation changed what it means to be human. It changed all of humanity because God became one of us. See, the beginning of that prayer where it says, God wonderfully created human dignity, that is a reference back to the book of Genesis. And in the book of Genesis, we see that not only did God make us humans, but he made us in his image. Now, to our modern minds, maybe that sounds like we're some sort of little photographs of God wandering around the earth. God has two arms, two legs, two ears, one nose, and so on. Or it could sound like, you know, some sort of social media thing. Oh, she has created an avant-garde image for herself. But really, in that biblical sense, it really doesn't mean either of those. We are neither photocopies of God, nor are we some sort of following this fashion sense, I guess you could say. It's neither of those. It's a much richer meaning in the traditional context. It has more to do with our relationship to God and our relationship to the world. In the ancient world, kings and emperors lived thousands of miles, potentially, from places that they ruled, and it would take months and months to travel to each location. Without the sorts of modern media we have now, the ways that they reminded people of who was really in charge was often to put up statues in the distant locations of their empire. They put up these statues as an image, and a constant reminder of who was the ruler, of who really had authority. In a way, it's kind of similar to how our money, our coins, and our bills have faces of past presidents. But instead of representing who used to be important or who is foundational in our history, it was a reminder of who was in authority in that time. When God made humanity in his image, he absolutely made us to have certain characteristics of him, like love, but God's choice to make us in his image is also a statement of authority and dignity that he is giving to humanity because it's an authority and a dignity that reflects his own. It's an authority and a position that he echoed in his charge to Adam and Eve in the garden to rule over the fish of, in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Humans, you and I, were made to be like little local governors entrusted by the king of kings with some measure of authority on his behalf as we serve in his likeness, reflecting the loving sovereignty of God over his creation. That is why the Collect says that God created us with a natural dignity. But of course, we know what happened in the garden. Adam and Eve sinned, and humanity chose sin over God 
They chose to step away from God. And that inherent dignity of being made in God's image, that was damaged. The image of God in us was distorted by the fall. And that's where the second part of that collect comes in. The part where it says that the incarnation changes, well, it implies that the incarnation changes everything. The prayer says, O God, who wonderfully created and yet more wonderfully restored the dignity of human nature. The incarnation was not the first step toward God saving humanity. It was one step of God saving humanity. When God became human, his divinity combining with humanity elevated all of humanity. It brought restoration to human nature itself. We no longer live in the hopelessly marred state of human nature as it became after the fall, although certainly that work of restoration has not yet been completed and will not be fully completed until Jesus returns. But it has already begun. The dignity of being human was restored to all humans when God became human. And even more, because God became human. No wonder the angels burst into sight before the shepherds, seemingly unable to contain their joy at this good news. No wonder a star erupted into being above the spot where this infant child was born. No wonder the wise men, seeing that same star, felt compelled to travel from their far-off land to go and see this child who had been born, whose birth changed everything. The very fabric of the universe, and most especially the nature of humanity, was changed because God who created it chose to step down into it to become a part of that created universe. We celebrate Christmas, not just because it leads to Easter, as important as that is, don't get me wrong, but as a most holy day in its own right. We celebrate Christmas because Jesus' birth is an integral part of our salvation. And once we recognize this, it's easy to see why everything and everyone makes such a big deal about Jesus' birth when it happens. And it's easy to see why we would still party and exchange gifts and read that story to one another every single year. But it's only appropriate that we ask ourselves, does the incarnation still have any impact on the world and more specifically on us, on our day-to-day lives? Now, now that it has been accomplished, does it still matter for day-to-day living? Well, the answer to that is yes. It does still matter. In fact, it has enormous import. Here's why. If what it is to be human is changed, not just for Christians, but for everyone, you know, our Ephesians reading, which honestly could be a whole sermon in itself, it talks about how God has adopted all who believe to be his children. Gosh, there's so much you could say about that. But As good as that is, the incarnation, it changes things for every single human, whether they believe it or not. And if that is the case, then that means that each and every single person you encounter, Christian or not, 
nice or not, tall, short, able, disabled, local, foreign, known, unknown, young, old, you name it. Each and every one of them has the dignity, the dignity of sharing humanity with Jesus. Has the dignity of the image of God once more restored within them. That means that the barista who messes up your cappuccino, the stranger who cuts you off in traffic, and the impoverished child who dies of a preventable disease all have the same dignity and worth in the eyes of God as the most successful, most accomplished, most impactful person you can think of. That is why as Christians, we value each and every life, those close to us, those easy to love, and those who are neither close to us nor easy to love, those who the world values and those who it casts aside, overlooks, or outright rejects. That is why as Christians, we cannot and must not ever act like Herod, who so callously and incredibly cruelly treated human lives as expendable to serve his needs. That is why, as Christians, we know that there is never a life that doesn't matter to God, to all of humanity, and to us as individuals as well. As C.S. Lewis famously wrote, the most holy thing you encounter in day-to-day -day life, besides the body and blood of Jesus in the Eucharist, is other people. But there's more. The incarnation affects not only how we view and treat other people, but also how we understand and treat ourselves. No matter how you feel about yourself at any given moment, no matter what others may say or how they may treat you, no matter even what you have done, you are made in the image of God. And the dignity of that image has been even more wonderfully restored because God himself became human. The dignity of your humanity is unchangeable, unassailable reality. And God calls you to understand and treat not only others, but also yourself with that same dignity and respect. When God the Father looks at you, as when he looks at any human being, he sees reflected in you the face of his beloved son, Jesus. How could the world not change? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how can we thank you enough for sending your Son? Lord Jesus, how can we thank you enough for becoming human? We pray that you would work in our hearts and our minds, that your Holy Spirit would be present within us to give us your eyes to see the people around us and to see ourselves, not as the frustrations and not as the failings that we all have, but as made in your image, and that image restored in Jesus. We pray this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.